You are tuning in to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, a podcast series that delivers access to some of the industry's most experienced active managers and thought leaders. We're sitting down to ask them the pertinent questions to find out their insights on the market environment and navigating the investment landscape. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm Mark Brisley, Head of Dynamic Funds. I am joined once again by Miles Ziblock, Chief Investment Strategist here at Dynamic, but also a well-recognized strategist across North America, regarded for his investment insights that blend the tools of finance and psychology in order to capture major inflection points in financial markets. Miles provides top-down strategic investment ideas and inputs for our portfolio managers and analysts. And in addition, his investment views are shared even more broadly via regularly written research reports and his regular appearances on financial media platforms across Canada and the US. We are framing our conversation today around an outlook for markets and economies in 2021, but with consideration given to the impacts that an unprecedented 2020 have had on both. We look back on a year that ended up being bookended by two bull markets, seemingly both quite different in nature, with a not so significant bear market in the middle. The world has seen this before, but perhaps what was most curious was the speed of the market's recovery and the disconnect between that rebound and the overall perception of broader economic health and stability. Miles, I look forward to diving right in here. So I'm going to get started with the obvious fact that we ended off a memorable year in the markets and in the world in general. What surprised you most about the past year? Well, Mark, thanks again for having me on the program. It's always good to chat with you. Um, there, there were so many things. You know, I was amazed by, for example, the speed and depth of the global economic collapse, the intensity of the equity bear market, and uh, the subsequent and, and what can only be described as, as really epic price rebound. What's most remarkable about the last 12 months is that it provided me with, a, I guess, a living example of our adaptability to extreme and novel situations. You know, we figured out uh, ways to move forward even as schools and businesses were closed, travel was stopped, uh, life in general was was flipped upside down. And many of us embraced technology and, and we started to wear masks, social distanced. Uh, global policymakers were working double time to support the private sector as it attempted to navigate the health crisis. Um, and with a lot of, of effort and human ingenuity, we were able to bring what appears to be uh, highly effective vaccines to the market in, in record time. And, and all of this has taken a lot of collaboration and cooperation on the part of people and businesses and governments. Uh, we seem to focus uh, on the negatives, and, and there are plenty of those to focus on. But I, I really was you know, inspired by many of the things I'd witnessed over the past year. Uh, we're still not out of the woods and, you know, many families uh, and businesses are really struggling, but I think we're working our way towards a sustainable solution, uh, a return to some form of, of economic normality. So, I, you know, I guess you could say uh, we, we're finally seeing some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, the scope of the pandemic and the impact of COVID-19 was just so broad in so many ways. But if we think about it economically, do you think, in, in your view, that COVID-19 has reshaped economies? It is. The, the biggest changes, I think, are occurring around the home. You know, entertainment, leisure, eating, shopping, and, and working are largely being done from the home or, say, in a neighborhood proximity of the home. Uh, the pandemic has effectively 
localized a large share of our daily economic life. Technology has been the gateway uh, to this new way of life. The accelerated and and broad-based adoption of technology will probably generate some lasting impacts on behavior. And this is not to say that we're never going to shop in malls again or that that Netflix will completely replace movie theaters or or office space is going to follow the dodo bird. Um, It's going to take some time uh, following widespread vaccinations uh, to fully gauge the differences between would appear to be transitory and and would also appear to be lasting changes. You know, needless to say, I think our economic future will probably look quite different from its pre-pandemic past. So much discussion, you know, looking at 2020 in review and even during 2020, and the, the conversation is going to continue in 2021 was around equity and bond market returns, but also the connection to this low interest rate environment we find ourselves in, or the thought that it's a, a lower for longer uh, scenario we're in. What do you think all this means for future returns in the market? You hit the nail on the head. Interest rates are are really low, incredibly low. Uh, the ten year U.S. bond yield it, it sits at about one uh, percent, uh, which is basically the lowest level we've ever seen. That goes back 150 years. You know, and keep in mind over that history there has been at least two major economic depressions. Uh, and several very large financial crises. And, and yet bond yields today are still lower uh, than any other time in history. The odd thing is that those yields are, are relatively attractive. Those U.S. yields are, are attractive when we broaden our lens to include you know, the remainder of the global bond market. About 27% of today's publicly traded bonds across the world carry a negative yield to maturity. And that's simply stunning. Um, you can't find a single government bond in Germany all the way out to 30 years that has a positive yield. And you know, just before uh, coming on and talking with you, I, I checked and the 30-year uh, German government bond now yields negative 0.15%. You know, I think these, these ultra-low yields or global yields are, are in part at least explained by uh, some powerful disinflationary forces like aging demographics and globalization. But, you know, there's no question in my mind that central banks have also played a, a big role in suppressing bond yields. They've basically nailed their uh, policy set interest rates to the floor uh, and they've been buying trillions of dollars of bonds. That's, you know, known as quantitative easing from the secondary markets. Uh, these are large price sensitive buyers and, and, you know, they're, they're probably holding yields at lower levels than otherwise would be the case. You know, just to understand the scale of, of their bond buying programs, you know, I'll give you a made-at-home example. Um, the Bank of Canada, our central bank, uh, now owns 45% of the outstanding stock of Government of Canada debt. Uh, for every dollar owed by the government, um, 45 cents is now owed to the Bank of Canada. And the story is, is similar in the U.S., Japan, and uh, across much of Europe. You know, the most direct impact all, all this has had is, is on the government bond market. And like I said, bond yields are, are low, and, and this also means that future returns for those bonds are likely to be low. If I buy a 10-year government bond yielding 1% today, I know that I'm going to get close to a 1% uh, annualized return over the life of the bond. So what's the yield scarcity done, I guess, is, is it's encouraged investors to reach for yield, to chase yield. Um, the ripple effects have, have spread outward from, from the government markets. You know, I calculate that uh, about 12% of the entire stock of global corporate bonds 
uh, now carry a negative yield or a yield below 0%. And, and this is you know, filtered into higher yielding bonds and, and even into the equity market. Um, low risk-free rates have, have helped push valuations higher right across the asset class spectrum. And so you have higher valuations in both equities and bonds, and that probably means we need to temper our, our long-term optimism uh, for these traditional asset classes. And it's not to say that we, you know, we can't improve the odds of better returns. You know, let, let me give you the, the, the equity market as an example. Uh, the, the lion's share of, of today's equity valuation risk is, is really concentrated in the largest 50 stocks. So if you control your exposure to many of these mega cap names, uh, that can help lower the valuation risk in an equity portfolio by between you know, 25 and, and upwards of 50%. So you know, said differently, selective participation in the equity market can offer investors an effective workaround uh, to, to these potential valuation challenges. And, and I think the same uh, idea can be applied to many of the other asset markets. But the, you know, the bottom line really is, uh, you know, say in the next 10 years, they're, they're probably not going to be as fruitful for investors as the past 10 years, given uh, today's starting point. So with that in mind, uh, and you're talking about asset classes in those comments, what are your thoughts on economic growth prospects when we think about regions? And maybe I'll start with the first two that were you know, most impacted by the pandemic being North America and Europe, but then also looking a little more broadly out towards uh, regions like emerging markets. Well, I mean, if you take a step back and you look at the world economy, I, I really do believe that it's entered the early stages of, of an economic recovery following one of the deepest downturns for sure in, in the past hundred years. Uh, so, you know, after declining by about four and a half percent in 2020, I think world GDP has a good chance of expanding by more than more than 5% in 2021. So a really healthy rebound. Um, corporations and individuals have made impressive adjustments uh, in order to continue moving forward in, in what's really been an incredibly challenging environment. Um, governments and central banks have also been crucial, like I, I've discussed. Uh, they've, they've been a crucial part of this recovery story, and they've added a combined $30 trillion, uh, and that's equivalent to about one-third of world GDP. They've, they've added $30 trillion in emergency support. You know, and then we have the vaccination campaign, and, and, and that should soon help to start unlocking about a year's worth of pent-up demand. And, and set the stage uh, for a sustained recovery into 2022. So, you know, if you were to summarize, I think that we're on the cusp of a global recovery. I think the recovery is likely to be broad-based. And I think pretty much all major regions in the world are, are, are going to grow at a much faster pace this year than, than definitely than last year. So, uh, you know, I'm pretty optimistic on the economic outlook. I know one of the questions that you know a lot of heads of central banks are getting and government officials is the question around inflation and whether or not this recovery is considered to be sustainable enough for the conversation around inflation to change. Do we see any inflation scenarios over the coming year? Things like aging populations, uh, particularly in the developed world, globalization, uh, technological innovation, uh, increased labor market flexibility. I think all of these have placed significant downward pressure on the inflation rate over the past 30 to 40 years. Typical inflation readings of like 5 or 6% or, or, or even higher throughout the, the 1970s and 1980s have been replaced by rates which are more commonly hovering under 2%. Um, but, you know, this isn't to say that an inflation scare is impossible in the current environment. 
Um, economic recoveries, even during you know the last 15 to 20 years of low inflation, economic recoveries have, have usually been accompanied by accelerating uh, rises in, in consumer prices. Um, and so, for example, you know, after the 2000 recession, uh, inflation rose by 1.8 percentage points before it peaked out at close to about 3 percent in 2006. And, you know, inflation picked up the pace again following the great financial crisis uh, from below 1 percent uh, to about 2.5 percent. So, you know, it seems likely that 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 some upward pressure on inflation is going to surface as this as this recovery matures. Uh, labor uh, and product markets are going to tighten. And, you know, I think uh, inflation in North America could increase from somewhere around uh, 1.3, 1.4 percent in, in 2020 last year to maybe two to two and a quarter uh, by the end of 2021. Um, I, I, th- I really do think it's difficult to uh, expect much more than this. Uh, like I said, those those long term disinflationary forces are are likely to keep a, a relatively low ceiling over over the inflation rate for uh, for several years to come. So again, maybe a little more inflation, uh, but I don't think runaway inflation. Another area we get a lot of questions, Miles, is uh, around currency. My question for you today is specifically around your outlook for the Canadian dollar. And, and when I think about that, I think the Canadian dollar closed, you know, in 2020 near a three-year high versus the U.S. dollar. What's your outlook for the Canadian dollar? Yeah, I mean, you're right. The Canadian dollar, it's strengthened from about 70 cents to almost 80 cents uh, since the first quarter of 2020. So nine or 10 month period, that's that's a dime. Uh, so that's a big move in currencies. Um, and, and I don't think the timing uh, of the move is a coincidence. Um, most of the riskier asset classes, you know, whether they're equity indexes or commodities or high yield corporate bonds, all bottomed late in the first quarter of last year before turning higher. And global currency investors have generally viewed the Canadian dollar as a riskier or more cyclical currency, m- much like the, the Australian dollar and many of the emerging market currencies. Uh, so, you know, with, with global growth firming, uh, and commodity markets stabilizing. Uh, I think currency investors are leaving the relative safety of U.S. dollars um, to the benefit of, of, say, the Canadian dollar and other pro-cyclical currencies. Um, and, and again, I, I view what's going on here as a gathering global economic recovery. So I think, you know, the Canadian dollar is likely to trade on the side of further strength. And, you know, we may even see it surpass 82, 83 cents uh, in the not too distant future. So, uh, you know, I, I am still of the view that uh, cyclical currencies like the Canadian dollar uh, have uh, more room to appreciate in the coming quarters. Since the last time you and I chatted, uh, we now have certainty as to what's happening south of the border in terms of uh, an administration or a new administration. Uh, we know that also the Democrats will control the House and the Senate. Can you talk a little bit about some of the proposals that the new administration, specifically President Biden, is expected to put forward and what some of those implications are going to be, you know, for us from the Canadian looking at the U.S. perspective? You know, Biden has, uh, if you look at, at all that he, he's written, he's, he's set out a, what I consider to be a broad-based agenda, which he argues, at least, is a, is a net benefit to uh, middle and lower income Americans. Um you know, some of the things he talks, for example, tax rates are expected to increase for corporations. Uh, it's also expected to increase for individuals earning more than $400,000 a year. 
and uh, that's the top 1% of income earners in America. Um, he's effectively sort of turned himself into Robin Hood by, by taking from sort of the rich and giving to the rest of the country. Uh, he's offering more generous uh, tax credits uh, for child care, uh, elderly care, uh, and first-time home buyers. Um, it, the, I think the largest areas of, of net new spending, at least he's telling us, are planned for education. Uh, at one, that's almost two trillion dollars of, of new spending there, uh, and infrastructure, uh, another one point six trillion dollars of new spending, and that's what he assumes over uh, a two-term period. So he he believes he's going to hold on for the next eight years. So in total, you know, the Biden platform, at least from from my lens, is estimated to to be raising about three and a uh, three and a half trillion dollars in in new tax revenue. Uh, while you know, at the same time, they're they're increasing their spending by about five and a half trillion dollars. Um, so, assuming that that the objectives are met, uh, and that's a that's a huge assumption. Um, his plan going in uh, it represents about a one percent boost to U.S. GDP per year on average over the life of his two term presidency. So, you know, what what do we take away from that as Canadians? I think is 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 pretty basic. Is that it's. Uh, it's more spending. Uh, it's more stimulus, uh, which means probably a, a little stronger U.S. economy, uh, a little stronger U.S. consumer. And given that the U.S. Con- consumer is is pretty much uh, one of the key engines of global growth, that benefits uh, everyone, both directly and indirectly. So, uh, again, it's, you know, people have focused on the Biden tax plans, but on net, he's injecting more stimulus into the economy than he is subtracting. You know, this next question might have been one that if I think back a year ago would have been almost impossible to answer if we had been able to foresee what was about to happen. But when I pose the question of what are some risks investors might not be paying enough attention to, how does that get answered today now knowing what we have gone through, what what was possible and, and your outlook going forward? And and a second part of that would be are there parts of the market that you think are showing signs of exuberance or over exuberance or, or potentially even signs of a bubble? Well, before we get into that, I want to I want to say that that I am fairly positive on the year ahead. Uh, you know, economic growth looks like it's improving. Vaccination programs are ramping up. Policy settings uh, are likely to remain quite loose and, and corporate earnings should should advance in a, in a meaningful way. Um, but, you know, as money managers, uh, we, we can't be blind to risk and still survive. Uh, and, and, you know, on that front, there's a couple of risks that immediately come to mind for me. And to start, I'm not, I'm not sure people uh, fully appreciate uh, the concentration risk, which has uh, built up in, in many of the world's equity benchmarks. Um, so, you know, the top five stocks in the S&P 500, you know, for example, are now comprise about 20% of the entire uh, market capitalization of the index. And, and that's a that's a higher share uh, than what we saw during the 2000 uh, tech bubble. You know, as I said earlier, many of these mega cap stocks, they're, they're not cheap. Uh, they carry valuations that are 30 to 40 percent higher than uh, the typical stock in the equity market. And, you know, sure, they're, they're great companies with, with solid business models. But if something uh, unexpectedly entered and materially changed their stories, say, like, I don't know, um, antitrust regulation, uh, their stock prices could decline in, in, in a meaningful way. And, and given their sheer size, uh, this would probably also lead to 
a lot of downward pressure on on the broad averages. Uh, and you know, it's funny. I just I gave you the the U.S. example, but Canada is really in a similar boat. I mean, with the top five stocks in Canada for the TSX uh, now comprising about twenty five percent of uh, Canadian equity, the, the total weight in the Canadian index. So, you know, this concentration risk just isn't a made in the U.S. phenomenon. It's it's going on in, in many different uh, averages around the world. And then maybe another underappreciated risk, I think, can be found in the bond benchmarks. You know, I, I estimate that, that say, Barclays Global Aggregate Index I estimate that that is is uh, it's a well known bond benchmark. It's it's now sixty three percent more sensitive to changes in interest rates uh, today than it was say um, at the turn of the century. So l- let me put some numbers around that. Uh, a one percentage point increase uh, in interest rates uh, today would generate about a seven and a half percent loss in um, the value of the global bond benchmark and and you know say that that compares to a four and a half percent loss for an equivalent change in interest rates back in in 2000. Uh, the benchmarks have been increasingly stuffed with longer dated bonds uh, with little to no coupon and that and that leaves them more susceptible over time to to interest rate movements you know given uh, the risks that I just mentioned though um, I think one of the related investment themes uh, for the year ahead and and probably beyond that is is selectivity. Uh, and what do I mean by that? It, you know, I think you you have to know exactly what you own uh, and why you own it. Uh, so it's just something to keep in mind given these these situations we're seeing in a lot of the broad averages. Well, Miles, thank you for that. It's always an insightful and fascinating discussion with you. And I'm sure when we talk again, which won't be too long from now, that we're talking about even more positivity uh, looking forward. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure being on the program. And thank you to everyone for joining us on another edition of On The Money. And as always, we believe the best access to financial advice is through a qualified financial advisor. On behalf of everybody at Dynamic Funds, we continue to wish you good health and safety. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete fund lineup, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. 
The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated.